Hey guys, welcome to the Next Level Agents Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Kaufman, and along with my business partner and co-host, Fred Weaver, we bring to you our podcast all about getting to the next level. Sometimes we talk to real estate agents, sometimes brokers, sometimes people just in and around our space, and sometimes just entrepreneurs in general. But our point here is to talk to the brightest and the best and to pull gold nuggets out of them and bring them to you so that way you can take little actionable pieces of advice, sometimes big actionable pieces of advice and make your business even better and help you get to the next level. Do me a favor, if you haven't already, go over to ratethispodcast.com, ratethispodcast.com forward slash NLA, stands for Next Level Agents, and please leave us a five-star review if you have not already. All right, without further ado, welcome to today's episode. We are going to uh, bring out on the stage our friend Brian Gubernick. He was out here yesterday. Um, now that Kevin left the stage, I can actually say this. Um, my, Brian is my favorite host of my favorite podcast. How many of y'all listen to the No Days Off podcast? Screw you. Oh, he does still have a mic back there. Dang it. Shut him off, guys. Um, no, in all seriousness, I listen to Brian's podcast like 10 to 1 over Kevin's podcast, even though it has my name attached to it. Um, I really appreciate the text I get every morning from Brian. If you guys haven't checked it out, go to the nodaysoffpodcast.com and check it out. Brian's one of the pillars in our industry. He's been a great friend of Kevin and mine for many years. You guys got to hear him do a cool interview yesterday with Dr. John, and uh, I'm excited to have him back today for his own presentation. So if you would, uh, give it up for my very number one favorite podcast host, Mr. Brian Gubernick. That's pretty good. That's actually pretty good. It is a good podcast. All the hands went up. I couldn't see, right? Get out of here. Just a front row guy here. Right, my one listener. I have, five, I have four total. It's this guy, John up here, and, 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 and my sorority house, my wife and my two daughters. <laughs> I run a sorority house. So different conversation. All right. So before I dive in to what you see on the screen here, I didn't really get a chance yesterday to kind of even introduce myself for some of you that don't know me. I have been around for a little while, got into real estate really 2015, started, or 2015, I wish 2015, 2005, <laughs> then got into sales in 2007, which as you guys know, many of you were, were around back then. If you want a perfect time to get into real estate sales in a perfect place, you pick Phoenix, 2007, <laughs> right? So, so I had some wins and and, and built a team from there and went to a couple different states and got in the mortgage and got in the title and got in the coaching and training and, and did a lot of cool things. In the past couple uh, years, I got uh, into the corporate side of things, helping build out a company called Homeward. And then for the past year, I've been the chief real estate officer for Place and, and joining my partner, Ben and Chris. And while I'd like to think that maybe I'd be known for one of those things, what I'm actually most known for is the guy that first interviewed a doctor about shit from stage. <laughs> I did not think years back that that would be the thing that finally put me on the map. But it, but it is. And I know this because multiple people in this room decided to send me a picture of their performance last night. <laughs> and even this morning, someone in here sent me the greatest text of all time that said, you got to adore a number four. 
and this is now my claim to fame. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Thank you. I should call you out, you sick bastard. <laughs> but it was probably the greatest text I've ever seen. And uh, I was just chatting with Dustin. Dustin missed that presentation. So I heard everyone kind of chuckle when he said Brian's slides. And he says, mine are shit. And then like two, two sentences later, he used the word movement. And some of you immature bastards were like, I saw you. And I was doing the same. But that was pretty interesting yesterday. John's a pretty cool dude. Um, I can spend a lot more time talking with that guy about health. And there was some serious, I mean, we, we joked around, but that's so serious. That's so serious. I hope you're all taking it seriously. Because here's what we know. And this is not my topic for today, but I'm passionate about this. We can go hard in all these other areas, our business, our finances, our wealth. We're going to talk about some of that today. Our de development, et cetera, et cetera. But none of it matters if our health isn't dialed. Like priority one in all of our respective worlds should be health. It has to be. Like if you think, nah, it's my family, I would challenge you in that you can't be who you need to be to your family unless your health is dialed. So make some sort of commitment today to do a little bit better in some aspect of health. Maybe it's your food choices, maybe it's your movement. <sighs> Physical movement, God. See, this is impossible. Like, being active, whatever it may be, I encourage you to do so. But that's, that's not what we're talking about today. What you can see here is we're gonna, we're gonna talk about Berkshire Hathaway. Who's familiar with Berkshire Hathaway? Who's Berkshire Hathaway? Warren Buffett, who else? Was Charlie Munger? What do they do? So, let it ride for 90 years. Berkshire Hathaway was formally, I think, created, uh, and, and Warren and Charlie kind of came together around in, in, in the mid 60s. It is a massive holding company that owns companies like C's Candy, that owns Wells Fargo or parts of Wells Fargo, has a massive stake in Apple is deep into the insurance game, owns Geico, which is their most profitable business, and owns a, several hundred other businesses, either in full or in part. It's been driven by, arguably, the two greatest investors in the history of money, in Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. If you did not know, last Tuesday, Charlie Munger, at the young age of 99, passed away. Uh, he is... He, he is one of my favorite individuals to study from. Uh, if you haven't listened to or studied Charlie, I encourage you to do so. Warren, there's more books and research about Warren than Alexander the Great, just so we're clear. Really, that's true. So if you don't know these guys personally, which none of us, I think, do, maybe someone does, but if you don't know them personally, you can get to know them at a really deep level by studying them. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Berkshire Hathaway, run by the two smartest investors of all time. What can we draw from what these guys have to share? Now, aside from the books and all of that, Berkshire Hathaway, public company, Berkshire A stock, I think trades for $538,000 today. Per share, 538K. I am a Berkshire uh, uh, shareholder. I own Berkshire B. That trades at $350 a share, <laughs> just so we're clear. But it makes me a shareholder. Anyhow, Berkshire A and Berkshire B, they're two big stocks, A, and then they eventually created a class B for, for the poorer guys. 
And I mention that because on an annual basis, two things occur. They have their shareholder meeting in May in Omaha, which is where the company is based, blooming metropolis of Omaha. Anybody from Omaha? Right, right, Berkshire Hathaway. I don't know what else is going on there, but convention center's nice. There's a bit, the baseball field's right. They'll all the World Series. Yeah. Um, they have the annual shareholder meeting, which is awesome. And I've had the opportunity to go a couple times. But in addition to that, what we all have access to is Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett publishes a shareholder letter every single year. Every year he puts it out. And we could all go to the Berkshire Hathaway website and pull these letters and learn from them. And it's his thoughts, not just on the company, but the economy, wealth, et cetera, et cetera. It's awesome. And we're going to talk about a little, a little of that today. So here's what I did, right? And this was kind of a selfish research project that, that I thought I'd talk about here with all you guys today. I appreciate Dustin saying my slides are awesome. They're actually not awesome. This is not going to be the most exciting presentation I've, I've given, certainly not as exciting as yesterday's. But it might be the most valuable. And so I'm going to ask you to commit. I'm going to ask you to play all out for, for all day, of course. But take the next 40 minutes with me and try your best to pay attention, because I don't like doing this, but we're going to do it. We're going to be reading some slides. Like, I'm not one to build slide decks that have a lot of words. I went against what I normally do. There are a lot of words here, because we're going to analyze some shareholder letters. And I promise you, if you pay attention, there are some nuggets in this that you can extract and you can apply to your respective worlds in business and in wealth creation. Cool? So, so, so please commit. Stick with me here. Here's what I did. I decided that 2023 and 2024 are pretty weird years. And I thought, you know what? If I want to figure out how to dominate in 2024, I wonder what I could learn from past years that might kind of be similar. So I started asking around, like, you know, my dad's friends, like, what year do you think was like 2022, 2023, 2024? What year was similar to what we're going through right now? And the older generation says, oh, that sounds like the early 80s to me. Feels like the early 80s. I remember the early 80s. I said, cool. Then I asked Ben, you know, Kenny, what do you think? And Ben said, it could be early 80s, but what do you think about early 90s? I said, maybe. And then how about the, the housing bubble? Yeah, that crashed in 2007. But there were some things, aside from the bubble bursting, our market is not like that. Let's be super clear. It won't get to that. We're not upside down. You guys all know the stats. We won't spend any time there. But there are some things going on that are very similar to that. Agree? Yeah, yeah. Those of you that, that were in the industry, there, there, there's some weird things like that. 2008, kind of similar. So I pulled some numbers. And you see them all here on this chart. I don't know if all of you are num numbers junkies. But there's a couple of things here, right? Look at the 10-year Treasury. Sure, in 82 compared, compared to 2023, it's much different. But the real estate appreciation wasn't that much different between 82 and 2023. You see 30-year mortgage. Yeah, we all heard the stories. Super high interest rates in the 80s. Some of you experienced it personally. I've only had the opportunity to read about it and hear about it from my mentor a million times over. 
at every real estate conference that he holds. You guys know who I'm talking about. But 30-year, right? 7.5% roughly is the average for 2023. We get all worked up over it. But the truth of the matter is, I remember 2006 and 2007 buying houses at 6.5, thinking, this is the greatest rate I've ever had. I can't believe it. Anybody else remember that? Yeah. Like, I bought a house uh, that, you know, that went to foreclosure, of course. But <laughs> I bought a house in 2006, and I'm like, I knocked it out of the park with this rate. It was like 6.5, something like that. Today we're at seven and a half, not that much different. Unemployment, you see the numbers there. Yeah, super high in the early 80s. But there's some similarities there. GDP, right? A measurement of how our economy is growing. There's some years that are clearly similar with 2023. The Dow, the Dow Jones, lots of ups and downs in the market. Real estate appreciation, you know? And then the Fed, the Fed funds rate. You see some interesting things here. Now, the early 80s and the early 90s and 2007, 2008, all of these periods were recessionary periods. So I'm not here to say, I don't even know if we're in a recession or we're going to get into one. They change the definition every time we talk around it. You know, by definition, technically, it's occurred. But then you hear Jim Cramer or, or someone else say, no, nah, it's the new definition. The world's different, whatever it may be. It is interesting to me that some of the things we pulled were similar to recessionary years. So I said, OK, these are the years that I'm going to say are similar to, in some way, to what we're experiencing right now. I'm going to go back through all of the Berkshire Hathaway letters written by Warren Buffett, and I'm going to do all the research and all the reading for you. Again, I wanted to bring it here today, but I really wanted to go through it. And it's probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 pages of stuff. And what I've done for you and, and for me is go through these letters and try to pull out things that can help us today. Now, when we get to the end, there was a big discovery I made, and I'll share that with you here. But I'm going to go through some things, starting with the 82 letter. We're going to read it. I'm going to give you some quick thoughts. And I'm going to ask for, ask for some participation. I want to hear what you think of some of these comments. Cool? All right, let's do it. Before that, though, I forgot about this part. My bad. Important events, 82. And there's a point to this. Israel invaded Lebanon. US was in a serious recession. Ozzy bit the head off a bat. <laughs> 83. 83, US drops missiles in West Germany. Soviets shot down a Korean airliner. 269 people killed. New York City to Seoul. This is Cold War time, right? US invaded Granada, economic recovery. Fraggle Rock actually debuted on HBO. <laughs> Do you guys remember Fraggle Rock? When I read that, I was like, oh my god, that was the biggest news of 83. <laughs> what was that thing they used? They used to eat their structures or something like that? Do you remember that? Oh, come on. Down in Fraggle Rock? <laughs> some of you young guys are like, you're an idiot, man. In 1990. Germany uh, reunites, Yugoslavia breaks up, Mandela's free, the Gulf War, by the way, starts, and we're in recession, but it's a jobless recovery. That's interesting. In 91, there's a coup in Russia that fails. USSR comes to a formal end. My in-laws and my wife moved to the United States at this time. They were in Bulgaria. They were in Bulgaria, which was under Russian control. They left when, when communism lifted. When I ordered her off the internet, 
I learned all of this story. Rodney King was 91. 2007, iPhones first released. Virginia Tech, there was, there was the killings of Virginia Tech. This was 2007. The housing bubble burst that year, and we entered another recession. And then 2008, bank bailout, Obama, and then Lil Wayne dropped the Carter Three, <laughs> which is his best album of all time. I don't care what any of you guys have to say. Am I right? I know a lot of people say the Carter II was best. I think the Carter III is hands down as number one. So what am I doing when I share this with you before we dive into the letters? There's a lot of noise in these years. There's a lot. Like, there are many periods of time. In, look at 82, Israel's invading Lebanon. And that's not a reference to today. I'm just saying, like, that's what's going on in the Middle East. We're in recession. Unemployment rate is the highest since WW, or in the WW2 era. There was probably people in 1982 saying, God, it can't get much worse than this. Oh, then in 83, uh, Cold War, I mean, literally, Soviets shot down a, a Korean airliner, 269 people going from New York City to Seoul. Like, imagine that happening today. In 83, someone probably said, gosh, the world is insane right now. And 90, same thing, 91. 2007, um, that housing bubble burst. And then that Virginia Tech shooting, I remember that. I was like, man, we're doomed. What am I trying to explain here? I don't know about you guys. I've definitely sat around over the past several months and said, oh my God, what is going on in this world? And I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying we've been here. And that's going to be some of the theme you see in these letters. The 1982 letter. This is the first excerpt. 1982, recession. You remember all these things that were going on. Only a few years ago, it was only a few years ago that we told you that operating, operating earnings with proper allowance for a few other variables was the most important yardstick of any single year managerial performance. While we still believe, this is Warren and Charlie, while we still believe this to be the case with the vast majority of companies, we believe its utility in our own case has greatly diminished. You should be suspicious of such an assertion. He's saying be, be suspicious of me. Yardsticks seldom are discarded while yield, yielding favorable readings. But when the result, results deteriorate, most managers favor disposition of the yardstick rather than disposition of the manager. Interesting. When things are going well, everyone loves the scoreboard. When things aren't going well, we want to discard the scoreboard as opposed to discard the manager. What Warren was saying here, though, and this is really interesting with their philosophy, is that they typically were using operator earnings to gauge the performance of a company, but recognized maybe that was short-sighted. Because what Berkshire Hathaway is known for, among many things, is that they don't sell anything. They keep every company. Very rarely do they sell a position. They're in it. Any business they acquire, there's been a couple they had to let go that just were failures, but the vast majority of them, they are in for the long term. This is a long game. Any single year performance, yeah, they watch it, but they're not ejecting immediately. You follow me? I share that because we're business owners. Many of you own multiple businesses. Many of you obviously own your own business. If you're in the real estate game, whether you're an agent or our team, you are a business owner. Do not judge your success 
by any one year. Every one of us is in this game or planning to be in this game for a pretty long period of time, right? Typically, rooms like this are filled with people playing the decades game, not the months game. In addition, in the 82 letter, as we look at the major acquisitions that others made during 1982, our reaction is not envy, but relief that we were non-participants. For in many of these acquisitions, managerial intellect wilted in competition with managerial adrenaline. The thrill of the chase blinded the pursuers to the consequences of the catch. Pascal, mathematician, a French mathematician, his observation seems apt. If it has struck me, it has struck me that all men's misfortunes spring from the single cause that they are unable to stay quietly in one room. I almost have to pause so you can like kind of internalize some of these things. What's going through your mind when you read this? What did it say that louder? Shiny object. Shiny object, exactly. 82, there was a lot of chaos. And lots of people jumped in. I, I got to get my peace. I got to go. I got to, my adrenaline's driving me to get after it. And what Warren is saying here, the thrill of the chase blinded the pursuers to the consequences of the catch. Really interesting. Really interesting. I think for those of us that are heavily invested in real estate, like, you know, I got to go grab that opportunity. I got to go get it. That price, it's, it's 10% off right now. I got to go get it. And we don't underwrite and we don't do the analysis, and we don't thoroughly think it through, and we're aggressive, and then it works out, and we're like, hell yeah, I'm a genius. That kind of sounds like my 2006, my 2005. Acquire, market goes up, I'm making money, market goes up, I'm making money, I'm making money. Market goes, well, wait, it didn't go up this time. Oh, shit, you know? 82 letter. Berkshire's economic goal remains to produce a long-term rate of return well above the return achieved by the average large American corporation. Our willingness to purchase other partial, either partial or total ownership positions in favorably situated businesses, coupled with reasonable discipline about the prices we are willing to pay, should give us a good chance of achieving our goal. I want to focus on that bold statement, our willingness to purchase positions in favorably situated businesses coupled with reasonable discipline about the prices we are willing to pay should give, give us a good chance of achieving our goal. Charlie Munger is the one that convinced Warren that price is a factor but should not be as weighted as heavily as Warren was weighting it. Everything doesn't have to be bought at a discount. Their position was, we're willing to pay a fair price for a company that has an amazing position or an amazing product or has a moat, we just want fairness. We don't have to pick it up at a discount if we believe in this business. Now, why can they say that? And why do some of us struggle to adhere to that? Because when Warren and Charlie were buying a company or buying a company for Berkshire Hathaway, they buy Coca-Cola. They buy American Express. They buy these companies that they're holding for the rest of eternity. And so when they say we can have a fair price, we just want a great product, service, or moat, or value to that business, it's because they have a long-term mentality. I encourage all of us, if it works for these guys, it might work for us. Make sense? In 83, we rarely use much debt. 
When we do, we attempt to structure it on a long-term fixed rate basis. We will reject interesting opportunities rather than over-leverage our balance sheet. This conservatism has penalized our results, but it is the only behavior that leaves us comfortable. These guys just, Berkshire Hathaway has never really used debt. As a result, they grow or they've grown in individual years at a lesser rate than their competition. But when you look at their history of 60 years, how has that fared? I think, there's, I think they literally have like a, I'm going to misquote this, but it's like a 20,000% increase in, in share value or something insane over time. They don't use debt. Now, I emphasize this. Why? Because we could all go to these real estate conferences, these investment conferences, and what do you always hear? How do you how to how to strategically and aggressively use your debt to get further ahead? I'm not saying that's bad in all cases. Please don't think that. I'm just saying our buddies Warren and Charlie wouldn't do it. And maybe they know a few things. This is an 83. Long one here. This should be fully aware of, or you should be fully aware of one attitude Charlie and I share that hurts our financial performance. Regardless of price, we have no interest at all in selling any good business that Berkshire owns and are very reluctant to sell even subpar businesses as long as we expect them to generate at least some cash and as long as we feel good about their managers and labor relations. We react with great caution to suggestions that our poor businesses can be restored to satisfactory prop, uh, profitability by major capital expenditures. The projections will be dazzling. The advocates will be sincere. But in the end, major additional investment in a terrible industry usually is about as rewarding as struggling in quicksand. Nevertheless, Jim Rummy managerial behavior, Warren's a big Jim, Jim Rummy guy, Discard your least promising business at each turn is just not our style. We would rather have our overall results penalized a bit than engage in it. We kind of talked around this. I focused on this one. There's a lot to unpack right there. I focused on this one in 83, though, because this, to me, was the first time that I was reading. Now, they had mentioned it previously, but remember, I'm only focused on these, on these um, specific years. He talks around um, man the managers of the business. We're very reluctant to sell subpar businesses. We react uh, uh, as long as we feel good about their managers and labor relations. When they start talking about managers, they start talking about we buy businesses for their people. We get in business with families for their people. They are investing in people oftentimes more than they're investing in the product itself. They got into the C's candy deal not because of the candy, but because of the C's family. They got into the Nebraska Furniture Mart, not because of their affinity for furniture, but because of Mrs. B and the family we're going to talk about here in a moment. They get into the business, they're in the people business. Mrs. B, Nebraska Furniture Mart. One question I always ask myself in appraising a business is how I would like, assuming I had ample capital and skilled personnel, to compete with it. I'd rather wrestle Grizzlies than compete with Mrs. B and her progeny. The real question is, who knows what progeny means? Descendants. I had to look that one up. Now, in all seriousness, this is awesome. This one's awesome. What a great way to invert your thinking. I'm going to judge a business. I'm going to appraise a business by asking myself the question, if I had the capital and the personnel, 
how excited would I be to compete with it? That's a really good question. Anybody ever asked that question before they acquired something? It's a really good way to look at it. Is this useful? Yeah, is this stuff good? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's a great question, or a great statement. John's mentioning, you know, there was a point in my life where I thought I was going to be the next Howard Schultz and, and in the coffee game. Markup is second only to petroleum, by the way, the coffee beans, or caffeine. It's awesome. It's a drug, too. I mean, come on. But point is, though, when you drive around, you've got to ask yourself, I'm going to get into the coffee game. How would I like to compete with Starbucks? Now, many look at that, and if they even ask themselves that question, they're like, game on. In my mind, if I wanted to create the next big coffee you know, uh, franchise, competing with Starbucks was no easy task. And now I'm in real estate. <laughs> 1990 letter. Remember what was going on in 90? Equally important, our return was not earned from industries such as cigarettes or network television stations possessing spectacular economics for all for, for all participating in them. Instead, it came from a group of businesses operating in such, how do you say that, John? Prosaic, Prosaic fields as furniture retailing, candy, vacuum cleaners, and even steel warehousing. The explanation is clear. Our extraordinary returns flow from outstanding operating managers, not fortuitous industry economics. I don't know, the, I look at these and I'm like, wow, that's pretty insightful. I'm always looking at businesses and thinking, God, what are they selling? Do people want it? Is it attractive? Can I improve that product or service? Are they efficient as a company? Do they get leverage their resources properly? Do they manage their expenses? What kind of income are they making? That's where my head naturally goes. I'm going to guess some of you think the same way. Usually I ask at the very end, gosh, how are the people running it? And what these guys are saying, and they're a little bit smarter than us, fact, sorry, they're saying, you know what? The explanation is pretty darn clear to us. Our returns come from the managers, not the industry economics. In 90, we'll be buying businesses called stocks, year in and year out, as long as I live and longer if Berkshire's directors attend the seances I have scheduled. <laughs> Given these intentions, declining prices for businesses benefit us and rising prices hurt us. The most common cause of low prices is pessimism, sometimes pervasive, sometimes specific to a company or industry. We want to do business in such an environment, not because we like pessimism, but because we like the prices it produces. It's optimism that is the enemy of the rational buyer. None of this means, however, that a business or stock is an intelligent purchase simply because it is unpopular. A contrarian approach is just as foolish as the follow the crowd strategy. What's required is thinking rather than polling. I don't know. I get, I get so excited about this stuff. I have to read it five, six, seven times, think about how it applies in my life. This idea around we want to do business in such an environment, not because we like pessimism, but because we like the prices it produces. It's optimism that is the enemy of the rational buyer. It's so freaking good because we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. If you've done anything in investment, real estate, stock, well, I don't care what it is, one of the hardest things to account for is your optimism. I've had so many people, many in this room, present me with 
investment opportunities to look at and weigh in on. And never once has anyone really sent me the worst case scenario in their spreadsheet. They always send me the one that says, well, right now they're getting $1,100 per rent or for rent per month, but I, I know I could get $1,300. And so here's what the numbers look like based on that. I know they're telling me there's $25,000 in repairs, but I could get that stuff done for 16. So here's what the math really looks like. That's usually how it gets presented. What is that? It's optimism. I'm not saying be a pessimist. I'm just saying it's interesting to hear what these guys say. Optimism of others is what's creating opportunities for Berkshire Hathaway. Missed optimism. Optimism that didn't plan out or pay out to the way they expected. Huge debt. 1990, we were told, would cause operating managers to focus their, I like this one, focus their efforts as never before. Much as a dagger mounted on the steering wheel of a car could be expected to make its driver proceed with intensified care. Let's pause. Okay? They, what they're talking about, in 1990, there was massive amounts of debt at companies. And the idea was that junk bonds and massive debt would make managers focus even more on managing their business. And the comparison Warren gives us here is a dagger mounted on the steering wheel of a car. Would, you'd expect the driver to proceed with intensified care. We'll acknowledge that such an intention get, attention getter would produce a very alert driver. But in another certain consequence would be a deadly and unnecessary accident if the car hit even the tiniest pothole or sliver of ice. I like thought about this one when I was reading, and I'm like, dagger on the steering wheel, I hit a pothole. And that's, that's the analogy this guy's using here. The roads of business are riddled with potholes. A plan that requires dodging them all is a plan for disaster. Buffett's mentor, Ben Graham, rejected the dagger thesis. Confronted with a challenge to distill the secret of sound investment into three words, we venture the motto, margin of safety. 42 years after reading that, 1990, I still think those are the right three words. The failure of investors to heed this simple message caused them staggering losses as the 1990s began. This is just another message around debt. Who's thinking right now they might have a little too much debt with respect to their investments? You don't have to put hands up. A portion of this room should absolutely be thinking that. I'm not saying you have bad debt. You probably have great properties you own. I'm just saying two of the greatest investment minds ever would tell everyone in this room you're probably a little over levered. It's worth considering. 91, recessionary time, we're coming out of it. Our stay put behavior reflects our view that the stock market serves as a relocation center at which money is moved from the active to the patient. The active investor moves money to the patient investor. With tongue-in-cheek, only partly in check, I suggest that recent events, this is 1991, indicate that the much maligned idle rich have received a bad rap, the idle rich. They have maintained or increased their wealth while many of the energetic rich, aggressive real estate operators, corporate acquirers, oil drillers, et cetera, have seen their fortunes disappear. 1991, he believes that the energy, the energetic investor, the one that, that he was describing as the energetic rich. Who they really made wealthy was not themselves, but the patient investor, the idle rich. You're starting to see themes here, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a break. 
I started this project thinking I was going to get these like gold nuggets that I can use for building my business in 2024. Warren's going to drop knowledge on me that I know nobody else is reading in 1983 because you all have lives. I'm like, I'm going to get this. And all I got was stay the course. All I got was delay gratification. Over and over and over again, if you pull the best years ever of these shareholder letters, you see the same damn message. I'm not optimistic. I'm not pessimistic. I'm going to stay the course. We're at this for a long time. I'm not going to bet against anything because I'm betting for what? America. That's Warren's stance. I'm not betting against America. 1991 letter. If my universe of business possibilities was limited, say, to private companies in Omaha, I would first try to assess the long-term economic characteristics of each business. Second, assess the quality of the people in charge of running it. And third, try to buy into a few of the best operations at a sensible price. I certainly would not wish to own an equal part of every business in town. Why then should Berkshire take a different tack when dealing with the larger universe of public companies? And since finding great businesses and outstanding managers is so difficult, why should we discard uh, proven products? He was going to say the real thing when he wrote this, which was Coca-Cola. Our motto is, if at first you do succeed, quit trying. Now, what you're hearing here, I'm going to say it, right, because I don't know if you, if you put it together yet. Warren was actually anti-diversification. He did not believe, and Charlie feels the same way, that diversification is the play. And instead, become intelligent in an area or two, put all your eggs in that basket, and then watch that basket closely. Now, some would say, well, isn't Berkshire pretty uh, diverse? Not when your mindset is we're buying people and management more than we're buying products and service. That would be, I think that that would be their, their response. Their strategy didn't change. They weren't looking for the shiny object, as Kristen said. Now we're getting to the later letters, gang. 2007, remember the time. Today our country is experiencing widespread pain because of that erroneous belief that rising home prices cure all problems. As house prices fall, a huge amount of financial folly is being exposed. You only learn who has been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And what we are witnessing at some of our largest financial institutions is an ugly sight. He's, you guys, many of you have probably seen that quote before, right? Has anybody seen that Warren Buffett quote before? Yeah, it first, it first appeared in the shareholder letter. You only learn who has been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And what we're witnessing at the banks is a pretty ugly sight, 2007. A truly great business must have an enduring moat that protects excellent returns on investing capital. The dynamics of capitalism guarantee that competitors will repeatedly assault any business castle that is earning high returns. Therefore, a formidable barrier, such as a company's being the low-cost producer like Geico or Costco, they own them both, or possessing a powerful worldwide brand, Coca-Cola, Gillette, American Express, they own them, is essential for sustained success. Business history is filled with Roman candles. Companies whose moats proved, John, say that for me? Illusory. Illusory and were soon crossed. Our criterion of enduring causes us to rule out companies and industries prone to rapid and continuous change. 2007, they weren't in tech yet. I don't think they were in Apple yet. 
Technology was considered rapid and continuous change. A moat that must be continuously rebuilt will eventually be no moat at all. I want you to reflect on your own businesses right now. Do you have a moat built around your business? Or can your castle be infiltrated? That would be a big question I'd be asking myself over yesterday and today. Do you have a moat built around your business? Right? Can I compete? Remember, every one of you, every one of you, your job every single day is to wake up in the morning and take the people sitting in the database of the person sitting to your right. Seriously, look at each other. That's your game. Your game is to wake up every day and take from the people next to you. That's just the nature of the game. Today, I mean, hey, 2023, technology, database systems, everything that's out there, every buyer or seller is presently sitting in someone's database right now, right? So your job as a salesperson is to get up and take from your neighbor's database, which begs the question, they're coming on attack, they're attacking your database. What's your moat? How have you put your arms around your people? What's your wall? As Warren says, a moat that must be continuously rebuilt will eventually be no moat at all. And now we're getting to 2008. I'll read the last uh, portion there. Through the, though the path has not been smooth, our economic system has worked extraordinarily well over time. It has unleashed human potential as no system has, and it will continue to do so. America's best days lie ahead. Who was around in 2008? Who, were you in real estate in 2008? Yep. Yep. Were you sitting around saying, hey, America's best days lie ahead? <laughs> I, I, I can tell you I was not. I can tell you that the dozen of conversations I was having every day were not about America's best days. They were about Lehman, Lehman Brothers uh, collapse. They were about people jumping off of buildings in, uh, on Wall Street. They were about people losing homes. They were about vacant neighborhoods. He's saying right here, though the path hasn't been smooth, our systems work pretty darn well. It's unleashed human potential as no system ever has. It's going to keep doing so. America's best days lie ahead. Warren is saying the same thing right now. We just got to have the staying power. I got to tell you what, man, this year, I think it's going to be a little hard, especially the first six months. I think Ben probably conveyed that message. You probably heard that multiple times by now. I would contend that surviving might be actually thriving. Winning is going to feel like losing. I've gone through this before, as many of you have. He or she that has the intestinal fortitude to make it through will come out ahead and will win. When nine months from now, because it doesn't happen right, it, it's, it's starting now. Nine months from now, we'll have an even greater decline in the number of agents. Why nine months? Because anybody that committed to real estate school in 2023 and has graduated is still going to, they, they, they're already pot committed. And those that have just launched are going to give it nine more months. We're going to see it down. If you can get through it, build a business that maintains or even grows a slight bit, maybe not the years past, you will come out of this thing in such a great position. And that's what I take from this, this quote in 2008. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Whether, you're, whether we're talking about socks or stocks, I like buying quality merchandise when it's marked down. 
That kind of just speaks for itself. Home ownership is a wonderful thing. My family and I have enjoyed my present home for 50 years with more to come. But enjoyment and utility should be the primary motives for purchase, not profit or refi possibilities. 2008. And the home purchased ought to fit the income of the purchaser. The present housing debacle should teach home buyers, lenders, brokers, and government some simple lessons that will ensure stability in the future. Home purchases should involve an honest-to-God down payment of at least 10% and monthly payments that can be comfortably handled by the borrower's income. That income should be carefully verified. Putting people in the homes, though a desirable goal, shouldn't be our country's primary objective. Keeping them in their homes should be the ambition. I don't know, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I don't know how much there is to draw from this. This is just the, one of the very few times I see Warren speak specifically about real estate. And this was a really great point. We all reflect on this now and say, yeah, that's so obvious. That's so right. Let's just not ever get caught up in that, you know, forget, let's not forget this message. It makes a lot of sense. So in wrapping up, as I, I kind of alluded to a few minutes ago, I went on this journey to go study and find these nuggets from Warren and Charlie that I was going to drop here today about what has happened in the past and how you can leverage that for your future. And what I came away with was the same damn message every single year. Not all that exciting. And I was disappointed. I was actually disappointed. I was like, oh my god, these guys aren't going to want to hear all this stuff. Like, it was going to be awesome, and now it's not awesome. And I have, you know, I have like 12 more hours to put together a presentation. What am I going to do? Actually, I was early on this one. I was like three days ago. So, but after thinking about it for a moment, I was like, you know what, Brian, you're looking at this the wrong way. What you expected to see or find is not what you found. You found an even better lesson. See, I was short-sighted. I was like, I got to find the answer for 2024. And Warren's answer is, what are you talking about, knucklehead? You're going to be doing this for decades. Stay the course. Stay the course. Where swim trunks in the ocean? You know, the tide's going to go back and you'll be fine. Stay the course. That was the key takeaway. And so these are the greatest investors of our time. We all get to choose our profits, P-R-O-P-H. We get to pick our profits. Your neighbor might make more money than you. But that doesn't mean your neighbor is the person to give you financial guidance. When you have individuals like Charlie and Warren, who there are books about, who have made billions of dollars, and have made many people in their world billions of dollars, and, and, and people of Omaha hundreds of millions of dollars, here's your profits. And our profits here are saying, keep it cool. Be conservative. You don't have to be aggressive to make money. You just got to be at it a long time. Keep in, keep in mind, Warren made the vast majority of his wealth, like 90% of his wealth, after the age of 60. Now, let's be super clear. Warren, if he stopped at 60, would still be known as one of the greatest investors of all time. But he is now known as the greatest investor of all time because he's played the game another 35 years. Time is such an amazing variable, and all of us are so darn impatient. So what we have here, a couple pictures of Charlie. Uh, that middle picture was the shareholder conference. It was pretty cool. That's me um, before I got thrown off by security at Warren's house. And that's Ben, uh, Kelly Henderson, 
myself and Aaron Armstrong at, at, at the shareholder meeting. If you get a chance, um, it's a shame Charlie's no longer around, RIP. Uh, that's why I wanted to go so badly to see those two guys it, it, together because you know it was getting, you know, time was, time was finite. Um, but if you still get a chance, I would encourage you to go to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting and see what you can learn. It's a good experience. Go sit in the crowd, go listen to what Warren's talking about. Uh, all you have to do is buy Berkshire B for $358 today and you become a shareholder. And then you get a pass and they send you a letter and it's pretty cool. Any thoughts before we wrap up? What's going through your minds? Did I put everyone to sleep? I'm not apologizing because this stuff's freaking important. This stuff's important. I told you it was going to be boring, but you got to hear it. What, what were you going to say? Kristen, were you guys going to say something? There's always stuff going on in the world. That was one of my big epiphanies from this too. When I started looking up like historical like events, I was like, oh my gosh, there was, I mean, we know there's stuff going on, but there was serious stuff going on. We just, it's funny, like we have short memories. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it's always, it's always there. There's always noise. Yes, ma'am. I, I love that. Uh, she's talking about drama, the drama agent. Dustin was talking around some of this stuff. I actually think of it in terms of noise. I think that every one of, every one of us in this room, as leaders, as business people, I think of it, we have this volume control. We've got to turn that knob down. We've got to lower noise. How do you do that? Don't overreach. Don't overlever. Don't do deals that create noise in your life. Don't hire people that create noise. Follow me? Cool. That's all I got today, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're looking for even more valuable content and resources to help you grow your business, then we invite you to join our community, Next Level Agents at eXp Realty. By joining us, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits like live trainings, events, masterminds, weekly Zooms, digital downloads, and so much more, all designed to help you grow your business. To learn more and become a part of our community, simply visit kevinandfred.com forward slash contact and get in touch with us today. Of course, if you're not quite ready to take the plunge and join our community, that's no problem at all. You can still access all of our great content for free right here on this podcast. And again, we thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing to bring you valuable insights and more advice in the future.